0: Good morning, everyone. I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Uh, Acts, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 22 through 39 this morning, taking a little break from our study of the Psalms. As uh, This morning, as you've heard and you see in the bulletin, we celebrated the sacrament of uh, baptism for my youngest daughter, uh, Josephine. And, uh, and so I thought that we would take... Uh, this Sunday to look at the practice of infant baptism, of covenantal baptism, which includes the children of believers. Now, as we read in Acts chapter 2, what we are reading are the words of the first sermon in the New Covenant era. It is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And this is a critical moment as the old dispensation of signs and shadows was fading away and the things promised were coming to pass. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, through the sending and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a new era of redemptive history was being inaugurated. What we see in these verses in Acts chapter 2 is that this new era of redemptive history is deeply rooted in the covenant promises made throughout Israel's past. For Peter roots his message in the Old Testament promises, declaring them fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and sealed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In response, those gathered were called to repent and to be baptized as a mark of receiving this promised salvation. And what we will see is that just as the children of believers were included in the promises of the Old Covenant, they are just as graciously included in the promises of the New Covenant. So here now, the word of the Lord acts Chapter 2, verses 22 through 39. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now at this time, and we are so thankful for the gracious promises that you make to your people throughout your word. And this morning in particular, we are so thankful for the gracious promises that you make to our children. And we pray, God, as we spend time this morning searching your word to see if this practice of infant baptism is according to your will, That You would so enlighten our eyes and our hearts that we might truly discern Your will for us and for our children. We pray that You would speak forth clearly Your Gospel message to our hearts. That we all, through the power of the Holy Spirit, might be joined to Christ through faith in Him according to Your grace. We pray this in Your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So why do we practice infant baptism here at Rivermont Evangelical Presbyterian Church? Being that we just baptized my daughter Josephine and being that we have many little ones who have been recently born or just about to be born. If you didn't hear, Mike Palumbo and Whitney uh, had their child this past week. So we have another little one, Eliana Ruth Palumbo was just born. I thought because of all this going on, it would be a wonderful opportunity for me to explain this practice in a bit more depth. You see, like many of you, I have not come from a tradition that practices infant baptism. I have a Baptist background, and so I spent a lot of time thinking and praying through the whole idea of infant baptism before I became a Presbyterian minister. And as one who has had many questions, I understand that what I communicate this morning in no way is going to satisfy every question that one might have about this practice. So it is with humility that I present to you our view of infant baptism. And yet, with great confidence, that what I present is a clear and powerful reason why all Christians are called to present their children to the sacrament Of baptism. Now a few reasons that are not behind baptizing our children just to get these out of the way. First, we do not baptize our children because we believe that it automatically saves them or washes them from the stain of original sin. Our reformed heritage made a decisive break from this belief and never has a reformed tradition or catechism ever taught the view that Salvation is brought about automatically through baptism. Second, we do not baptize our infants to ward off evil spirits or to protect them. Superstition is not the reason that we baptize. Third, we do not baptize our children solely for the sake of tradition. Now, we do know from the earliest witness of the church that infants were baptized We know that Irenaeus was baptized as an infant around the year 140 and that the legitimacy of infant baptism was not a question the church faced until the 16th century. But the tradition of the church could be wrong. Tradition is helpful, but it is not the final authority for faith and practice, and so we do not lean on tradition alone. Fourth. We don't practice infant baptism because it's cute. If you were here this morning, you would have had a witness to the cuteness of infant baptism. There is much sentiment to see families come up with their little ones and to hear the promises of God and to see the congregation make vows and the parents take vows to dedicate their children unto God. And it makes for a great photo in your child's baby book. But this is not the reason why we baptize our infants. So then why do we do it? What is the reason? What is the purpose? Well very simply, we believe that the Bible teaches us that we are to baptize our children. We believe that a full and comprehensive understanding of the nature of God's covenant promises and the purpose of baptism itself will lead us clearly and confidently to give our covenant children the mark of being members of the covenant community, even the waters of baptism. Now the first thing that we need to understand when it comes to our view of baptism is the nature of God's covenant with his people, because baptism itself is the mark of the covenant. As we read through God's word, we see that he relates to his people through covenant. Now, covenants are oaths, they're promises, which lay out and establish the nature of a relationship. You can think of it like a marriage vow or a marriage covenant or bond that legally creates a new relationship between two parties with responsibilities and privileges. And so when we say that God relates to his people through covenants, what we are saying is, is that there are promises that are made to God's people throughout his word in which he creates a special and unique relationship with his people that was not there before. Now the nature of the relationship that God establishes in covenant can be summarized in the words that are repeated throughout the word of God. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is God's covenant promise. I will be your God, you will be my people. God is moving to establish a people, a family for himself that are redeemed from their sins that are reconciled to God and adopted into His family for all eternity. And the clear witness of Scripture is that He does this covenant making, this relationship bond, through families. The covenant with Noah included his sons. His sons came on the boat. The covenant was made with them as well. The covenant with Abraham was him and to his offspring. The covenant with Moses was not just for the generation that came out of Egypt, but for their children as well. The covenant with David was that God would establish his sons as kings and that ultimately a son of David would sit on the eternal throne, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 30 of our text, right? David prophesied about his future son that would come. Then you read in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, David a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, had made a covenant with him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. The covenant that was made with David affected his children, ultimately coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's take a little bit deeper look at the covenant with Abraham, the father of the people of God. In Genesis chapter 17, we read the account of God making his covenant. In verse 7, we read this, And I will establish my covenant, my promise, my oath, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then, follow in the following verses of Genesis 17, the Lord commands that the sign of the covenant, circumcision, would be placed upon all males in Abraham's household, including infants. Even infants that arrive later, they are to receive that sign when they are eight days old. This is the clear and repeated witness of God's word. The promises of the covenant always included the children of the household. In a society and culture that is radically individualistic, it's difficult for us to comprehend the solidarity between parents and their children assumed in the biblical text. But the people of Israel who were gathered on the day of Pentecost would have seen it as a given that God would not only be their God, but the God of their children as well because it had been promised to them for thousands of years. And this is the first point. God's covenants always include the offspring of the one receiving the covenant promise. The next thing that we need to understand is the continuity between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New. You see, it would be very difficult indeed to deny that children were included in the covenants established in the Old Testament era. We have specific commands that infants were to receive the very sign of the covenant, circumcision. There's no denying that children were included in the covenants of the Old Testament. However... Someone might ask, hasn't there been a change in the new covenant? Isn't there a radical difference between the way that God dealt with His people prior to Christ and the way that He dealt with them after Christ? Isn't the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ a new thing? And therefore, meaning that we need to change the way that we understand covenant? And the answer to these questions is no. No. And this might surprise you to hear this. For many of us have been taught that the Old Covenant was rooted in law and in the flesh. We've been falsely taught that people were made right with God through the keeping of the law and obedience. And yet central to Jesus' message and the Apostles' teaching is that the New Covenant is not a replacement of the Old Covenant, but a fulfillment of Old Covenant promises it's not that the old covenant was thrown out and the new covenant is brought in the new covenant is an organic fulfillment of what the old covenant had promised this is why peter continually roots his message in the old testament this is why jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it in romans we read that abraham with whom the covenant was established did not receive this promise by works he didn't receive this covenant by works But the nature of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was faith. Listen to these words in Romans 4. For the promise, the covenant to Abraham and his offspring, right? we've read about that, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Listen to this. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The covenant was based upon God's grace and received through faith. The basis by which the covenant was established with Abraham and his children was faith, not the law. The reason that Abraham received the sign of the covenant was faith. And the reason his children received the sign of the covenant was also faith. God's grace would be shown forth not through giving the covenant to those who kept the law, but those who received it in faith. The sign of the covenant was placed upon the children of Abraham as a mark that they were members not of a physical family primarily, but of a spiritual family of faith. And this is the same family into which we are also engrafted by faith in the new covenant. This is how we become sons of Abraham, as God's word continually refers to those who have faith in the gospel where we read in Galatians chapter 3, Know then, that as those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Here's what this means. The Gospel. The Gospel of the New Covenant. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins. The engrafting into the family of God. The adoption into God's family. The Gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to Abraham. And Abraham believed it. Abraham believed in the gospel. He looked forward to the gospel. David believed the gospel, prophesying that his chosen one would not be abandoned to Hades, but would be resurrected from the dead. David was preached the gospel, and David believed the gospel. The gospel is not something that is new to the new covenant. The gospel promises had been made throughout the history of God's people, and they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And as a sign of his belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Abraham and his household were given the sign of faith, the sign of the covenant. In Acts chapter 2, we see this gospel proclaimed to Abraham has been fulfilled in Christ. This is what Peter means when he says in Acts chapter 2, for the promise is for you and for your children. There is not a radical break between the old and the new covenants. Rather, there was great continuity. So much so that all who believe in the gospel are called sons of Abraham because they have faith in the same gospel that Abraham believed. And this means that every Jew gathered on the day of Pentecost would have expected their children to have been included in the covenant promise of the gospel. Why? Because they had been included in the promise of that same gospel for 2,000 years. Peter's words would have been extremely misleading if he meant something other than the inclusion of children in the covenant promises. Momentum is a hard thing to overcome. For example, say you have a stick shift and you're trying that old trick of rolling it down a hill to pop the clutch. Right? I'm aging myself a little bit here. My first car was a stick shift. I don't even know if they make those anymore. And my first car was a stick shift that didn't work real well. And so if you don't know how this works, what you do is you can't get your car started. You start rolling it down the hill. You pop it into gear and it might make your car start going. And what you're using is momentum. Right? The momentum is pulling your car forward. Now, sometimes it can get out of hand and you need to stop this car. And the last thing that you want to do to stop a car that's running down a hill out of control is to stand in front of it. Why? Because it has momentum. It will knock you over. It will flatten you. It takes a lot of energy to stop something that has momentum. Whether it be a car, whether it be a practice, whether it be an idea that has momentum, it takes a lot of energy to stop it. And we need to understand, we need to feel the weight of the tremendous momentum that was coming into the day of Pentecost in favor of including children in the community of faith in the gospel. So much so that it would have taken a tremendous effort to stop this practice. And if God desired that change to occur, it was His right. But never is there a single teaching or hint that God changed the nature of His relationship to the children of believers. But rather there is much evidence that children continue to be included in the covenant promises. Just a few things that we see. First is Jesus' care and words about children. In Matthew 19, we read, for example, "...then children were brought to Him," that's to Jesus, "...that He might lay His hands on them and pray." The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, "...let the little children come to Me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven." You see, Jesus welcomed children, even infants, as we read in Luke's Gospel. And he says that they are the rightful heirs of the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to children. Now, of course, this does not tell us that we should baptize our children. However, it gives us encouragement. For Jesus views even infants as rightful heirs of the kingdom. Second, we have Peter's words here in Acts chapter 2, in which he lays out the promise of the gospel and says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. It bears repeating what has been previously pointed out. Peter's words concerning the inclusion of children in the covenant promise would be extremely misleading If he did not mean for children to be considered rightful members of the covenant family and therefore rightful recipients of the covenant sign of baptism. This connection is heightened by the fact that Peter has just connected. You see, he has just connected baptism with the promise of the covenant. He has just made that connection that baptism is a sign of that promise. And then he said the promise is for you and for your children. What else? are we to take Him to mean except that our children are to receive the sign of baptism? Third, we see that baptism was administered primarily to households and not to individuals. In fact, the only three individual baptisms recorded are of single men without families. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Whom I am assuming didn't have any children. You know what a eunuch is. Every other baptism account occurred in groups or in households. We have several examples of household baptisms. It wasn't just one single event. Cornelius' household was baptized. Lydia's household was baptized. The Philippian jailer's household was baptized. Stephanus's household was baptized. Crispus's household were ba- was baptized. We read about this in, Philippi- in Acts chapter 16 about the Philippian jailer. Listen to how this played out. If you remember, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 16, the apostles were in jail, but the Philippian jailer uh, comes to faith uh, through the work of God. And they said, the apostles said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, none of these texts give an express command to baptize infants. But we miss the point if we are looking for an explicit command to baptize infants. Why? Because the inclusion of infants in the covenant community was already explicitly commanded by God to Abraham. What we are looking for is evidence that this practice was to continue. There is nowhere in the Bible that says stop including the children of believers. And there is every indication we have from Jesus' words to Peter's words to the church's practice tells us that the children of believers rightfully belong in the covenant community of faith and therefore are rightful recipients of baptism, and to withhold it would be to withhold their birthright, for they are children of the promise. So then what are we doing when we baptize our children? What is the function of this sacrament? Why does the Bible command us to do this? Well, first of all, it is a sign it's a sign of what Christ has done for his people. The waters of baptism signify the cleansing blood of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his people. It shows forth forgiveness of sins and redemption out of death into new life. And yet, a sign is not the substance, right? When you're driving down the highway, you're on a road trip, and you see that sign on the side of the highway that says Chick fil A. You have kids. Your kids are going, Chick-fil-A, we got to stop. we got to pull over. Now, the sign isn't the substance, though. You don't pull over at the sign and think that you're going to get a Chick-fil-A sandwich at the sign. You don't think you're going to get your 12-piece nuggets, or if you're trying to be healthy, the 8-piece nuggets, Uh, you know, um, or a salad. Um, You don't go to the sign. The sign points you to something. You follow the sign to the reality, to the substance, believing that if the sign points you in that direction, if you follow the sign, you'll get what it is that the sign has said. And God does not give us empty signs. And baptism is a sign that is to be placed upon our children, pointing us to the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not the end point. It is pointing us forward. We also teach that baptism is a seal. And as a seal, it's God's yes to His people. A mark that true and full forgiveness is surely given to all who come to Him in faith. When baptism is received, it seals the recipient unto salvation, one in Christ, in such a way that when our children claim it in faith, it will be theirs. Or to put it another way, through baptism... God says, I will be your God and you will be my people first. He doesn't wait for us to come to him and say, you will be my God and I will be your people. That's not the way the covenant works. The covenant does not work according to our initiative. It works according to God's initiative. And if you think of it as that marriage vow, it is God saying yes to the marriage vow first. Saying, I will be your God and I will be the God of your children. And when your children receive that promise in faith, they have a 100% guarantee that I will be their God. For salvation is by grace the unmerited waters of baptism through faith our response to God's covenant promise. And what this means to our children who are baptized is that they have been dedicated to God and they have received a promise of grace in Jesus Christ and therefore we must teach them We must pray for them. We must do all that we can do for them to lead them to receive this covenant promise in faith that they will say yes to God. As you can imagine, I've had several conversations about baptism, especially with parents who are wrestling through this. I know that this is not an easy... um, Uh, Topic to go through. I know that there's lots of people that have questions and even maybe even now are wrestling. You know, okay, I hear what you're saying. I see what you're saying with the covenant and continuity, but what I've been taught about, it just doesn't seem to jive with that. I don't understand how these things come together. I don't understand what I'm doing with my child and what this means. And so what I do is I lead them through a few questions and maybe it'll be helpful for you as well. First, I ask, Do you plan to pray for the salvation of your child? Do you plan to pray for your child? Well, of course, Christian parents. Yes, of course, I'm going to pray that my child comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, why? Well, the Bible teaches us that there are great promises that, you know, if we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be open. God makes great promises to us about prayer. And so I'm going to pray that my child becomes a Christian, that they come to faith. And that's wonderful. And I ask, will your prayers save your child? Will they save your child? And of course we realize that salvation doesn't work that way. Yes, we are called to pray. Yes, we believe that our prayers may be the means that God uses to bring about salvation. But salvation through prayer is not automatic. It is in God's hands. And so we trust God's promise of prayer and we pray for our children. Second, I ask, do you plan to read the Bible to your child and teach them about faith in Jesus Christ? And of course, again, the parents say, yes, I'm going to teach them God's word. I'm going to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because the Bible says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Will this automatically save your child Well, of course not. They need to receive these promises of God and faith. They need to respond to the Word of God with belief. Well, then why do we do it? Because it is the means that God has given to us as parents to see our children come to faith. It is not automatic. It is in God's hands. But we have a means by which we call people to faith. We call our children to faith, the Word of God. Third. Do you plan to baptize your child? Why do we do it? Because the Bible teaches us that it is God's appointed means of engrafting them into the covenant. It is the means by which they are engaged to Christ as their Savior. It is God's promise to be their God. It does not mean that they will automatically be saved, but it is the means that God has given to us to dedicate our children to Him and to seal them to the promises of redemption through Jesus Christ. It is a means of grace like prayer and reading God's Word. It does not automatically save our children. That is in God's hands and we submit to what God calls us to do believing His promises. And so we must pray for our children's salvation believing God's promises. We must faithfully teach them the Word of God believing that faith comes through hearing and we must present our children for baptism believing that the promise is to us who believe and to our children. A promise that was made to Abraham and a promise that is made to every single believer. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Father God, we... As we reflect upon the grace of baptism and how you have moved to send your Son to pour out his blood to cleanse us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that by your grace you have poured out this forgiveness upon those whom you have chosen to engraft into your kingdom. We come with much humility and trembling. And we ask, O Lord, that you would be faithful unto the covenant promises that have been made through the waters of baptism to us and to our children, and that we would persevere there unto the end. Lord, that the whole family of Abraham, the family of faith, will be united one day in that heavenly city, and we will rejoice as a family of faith for all eternity. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen.